You are listening to Primal Radio, the podcast dedicated to combat sports, martial arts, self-defense, and the warrior mindset. And here are your hosts from Hamilton, New Jersey, Jim McCann, and London, England, Tom McGrath. All right, Primal Radio, we are back. Tom, what is up? I've just been to the gym doing one of those John Little workouts. I'm kind of seeing how it goes. I can see your muscles. They're huge, Tom. <laughs> is this a new thing? This is what what you're going to be doing? Like you're going to experiment with this and see how it goes? So I'm going to get John back on in a little while and talk about his new book because I've, I've actually been reading it all and going through and doing the workouts. But, I, you know, I need to prove that it works first. But to be honest, it's one of the best books I've ever read. It's a good book. How are you? I'm good. Look, I was at the gym since four o'clock, trained a bunch of people, trained myself, just did conditioning today. It was good. I worked out with Stephen Phillips today, the kick, my, my kickboxer. Yeah, great guy. Yeah, we just did some conditioning. Eh, nothing, nothing great. But it was it was all good. It was a good uh, good session. So then I cut out of the gym, had to take care of a few things. So I get to the studio. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then let's do the show. I'm excited about our guest. Uh, this is a good one, Tom. So how did you make this happen? This man, you know, hard to find. I, Hard to get him on the show. So, so this week's guest is actually like, I would say, a genuine fan of the show. You're going to ruin his credibility, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> surprisingly, uh, surprisingly enough, we do have some fans, do have some regular listeners. And this week's guest is a general manager of Royal Range down in Nashville, Tennessee, which is, is a truly world-class venue that you can go and do various forms of shooting training at. It's a yeah. converted cinema, numerous instructors. They do some martial arts stuff. So he's done a 23-year stint in law enforcement, Started out in U.S. Infantry, joining the Army when he was a young uh, man. He's done various forms of martial arts, which we'll talk about in more detail, but karate, taekwondo, Chinese boxing. And he's done stints more, most recently in Afghanistan and Iraq. So a lot of operational experience there. So welcome to the show, Art Kaysen. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Big fan of the show, absolutely. Which is a complete surprise. <laughs> No, 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 no. no. Uh, no it's oh, I'm glad that you're on. Did you, how did you find the show? Was it because of Hawk Hawkheim or something? Or yeah, it's absolutely because of Hawk. You know, I've been a fan of his for years. Hawk and I entered into a, a bit of a business relationship, so we host him uh, twice a year here at uh, Royal Range in Nashville. And uh, just because we were friends on Facebook and all the social media platforms, right. I found you guys. And of course, I'm always listening to podcasts. You know, trying to stay on top of what's current and so forth. You know, started with the uh, first episode, and I, you know, I stay current with it. I love what you guys do. Oh, I love okay. the realism and, uh, you know, the, the the breadth of guests that you guys bring on there. You know, from uh, keeping up on what's going on in the uh, boxing world or the mixed martial arts world, and then, uh, you know, going back to somebody like Tim Tackett or something like that. You know, it's just it's just a really great show, and I, I commend both of you guys for what you do. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate. It. It's like we're important, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> it does mean a lot this kind of content that we put out is not going to appeal to everyone in no. the world you know it's not aimed at my mom right for she's example. not a fan she's the one who's writing the hate mail right i think as soon as we used to start out with the rock out of your podcast <laughs> stuff you're just like no not yeah that me. was so funny you made us change but anyway it's not about our show but that's true that's how it started and tom made me change that stuff but that was the whole thing so but anyway all right look, thanks for your time today take it out uh, taking, taking time out of your busy schedule to, to be on here. We're going to kind of just go over your story. It's fascinating stuff. So you were born and raised in Tennessee. Well, actually born in Georgia. Dad relocated to Memphis. He was running stores there and so forth. So I was growing up in Memphis in the early part. And then uh, he decided the town was enough and uh, moved us to a rural area and grew up along the Mississippi River. Kind of a Tom Sawyer-ish type youth. Yeah hunting, fishing, trapping, and typical hillbilly uh, redneck-type situation in the <laughs> South. <laughs> Tom, is that how the Europeans view Americans or that part of America? That is the side of America that I would like to see more of. You're in the city when you come over. Most times. And I've always talked about wanting to do like a drive across the U.S. and visit all like, my martial arts buddies across the country. I've done that in part in different places, but that middle America is very much unexplored for me. It's a huge question. People don't realize how big it is. You know, when I'm over in Europe, we'll get 
I can go from London to Belgium like nothing. For me to get to Tennessee, goddamn, it's got to take a day or two. All right, have you ever driven up to the Northeast? Oh, absolutely. Back in the day, uh, I was a bit of a uh, motorcycle bum. I went from East Coast to West Coast in all three areas, across the bottom, you know, in the middle on 40 and all the way through the top. No money in the pocket. Just, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, just, just making, Yeah, just making the trip. I tried to make a pretty good trip before I went to the Army because I thought I knew what to expect. My dad was a World War II vet. Uh-huh. And uh, when he found out that I'd signed up for the infantry, he didn't talk to me for like a year and change. Yeah, he just kind of shook his head and like, boy, I thought you were smarter than that. <laughs> so before you joined, the, so you joined the army because they needed something to do. Well, you know, where, where I grew up, you either went to work on the river, you went to work in a factory, you worked on a farm. And uh, I had done a little bit of all that as a youth. And I said, well, that's not for me. And of course, you know, I, I'm a bit of an adrenaline freak. And I thought, well, what the hell, you know, people jumping out of planes and, you know, doing all that stuff and John Wayne and all that crap. Well, heck, yeah. let's go for it. <laughs> so would you go to the recruiter and say, I want to join? They said, no problem. There was any issues joining? Or yeah, I, no, especially if you're going for the infantry, you know, they'll take anything they can for the infantry. You know, <laughs> uh, I had really good test scores, but at that particular time, you know, they had the bonuses going on because this was right after Vietnam. So, you know, the military was not that favorable in the United States. Especially, right. you know, our Vietnam vets have been uh, welcomed and so forth, or not welcomed. And, you know, the Cold War was going on. There wasn't really any activity per se, you know, for anything going on like we have now with the global war on terrorism. So, yeah, they were glad to see somebody walk in off the street. And uh, <laughs> Was your expectation that you probably would end up going to war? Because we have trouble in the UK with recruitment whenever there isn't a war. For me, like I said, you know, I, I wanted to, uh, you know, have some adventure. Everything I've done, whether it made sense or not in my life, has been, you know, probably uh, satisfy a certain amount of adrenaline or, you know, fit some sort of uh, ideology of a hero or what a man should be. And it seems like nowadays uh, that may not be the norm for some of the youth. But, <laughs> yeah, certainly during my time it was. I mean, you know, yeah. hell, everybody, everybody wanted to be Charles Bronson or, right. or John Wayne or, or, you know, one of those cats. You said about wanting to be a hero. Who doesn't? Yeah, no, I agree. But what is it to you? Like, I really relate to that David Goggins guy. His thing is, like, to be yeah. tough. And for whatever reason to me, it's like, I think being tough is the premier thing. We, we had Mike yeah. Gillette on one yeah. of the shows. For him, it was about being strong. For other people, it might be about being really intelligent or being really kind or whatever it might be. But for me, I could relate to the tough one. And the hero thing, when you said it then, I was like, yeah, I totally agree with that. But where does that come for you? Being a kid in America, you know, when you got a TV set, it was like, oh, shit, there's John Wayne, there's Charles Bronson. And, you know, these guys were doing the right thing. And for me, it was doing the right thing. Whether you're a hero or not is immaterial. It's doing the right thing. You know what I'm saying? You know, John Wayne at the Alamo, when the Mexicans are coming in there, he's like, fuck it. And he just blows up the whole armory and takes all the bastards out with him. You know what I'm saying? To kind of quote uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, you know, there's sheep, there's sheepdogs, and there's wolves. Now, I agree with what he's saying, that maybe law enforcement and military is almost a sheepdog, but for me, it's almost I've got to be a wolf also to fight a wolf. You know what I'm saying? I just got to be, I, I got to be a bit better wolf. You like riding motorbikes. You were a bit yeah. naughty when you were young before you went off to, to the infantry. I can relate to that as well. I do, I do think that there isn't a clear white as white. Oh, no. You have to understand the criminal for, to catch a criminal. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it, hero, anti-hero. The Punisher. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the Punisher. Love that show. It's not being the Lone Ranger being absolutely just spotless white. I like Tonto better than I did the Lone Ranger. But, you know, I can see what the Lone Ranger's doing. But for me, it was more of the gritty you know, when, when Charles Bronson started shooting people in the head after those criminals broke in there and, you know, killed his wife in that one movie, you know, where he's like a citizen vigilante, yeah. I was like, yeah, fuck yeah, I could do that. I was like, well, I can't do that without probably going to jail. But I can be a cop and I can try to make a difference without being a dickhead. That's why I said I couldn't write a speeding ticket. When I first got in patrol, you know, you, you're supposed to write so many tickets and I would get called in the office. You're not writing tickets. And I was like, you know, writing tickets is fucking bollocks. It's a money-making scheme. You know, it's, it's the government. And once again, there's my Scotch-Irish roots coming in. You know, it's thumbing up to the government like, you know, fuck you. I don't want to write your speeding tickets because we all speed. You know what I'm saying? 
and that's why I could never be a state trooper. Because back in those days, state troopers make really good money, had really good pensions, and everybody's like, oh, I'm going to go test to be a trooper because, you know, I'm going to do my 20, my 25 and get out. Art, why don't you go be a trooper? And I'm like, because I can't write a ticket. I'll lock your ass up in a minute for shooting somebody or stabbing somebody, but, you know, writing you a ticket for six, seven miles an hour and over, oh, God, I can't get yeah, behind yeah, that. I totally agree. You know? And that's why I was always trying to gravitate. When I got out of patrol and I became an investigator, and then I got to go try to catch people that were killing people, you know, that was really satisfying because most of the guys that we were going after were not people that were killing their wife because they were drunk. It was people that were killing people because they enjoy it. It was a murder task force. When you lock that kind of fucker up, there's a real sense of satisfaction because that's the ultimate bad guy, right? That's somebody that's killing an innocent or somebody weaker because they enjoy it. That's really killing the big bad wolf, so to speak. So I really enjoyed that. And then canine, you know, plus you got a dog, so that's cool as hell. And then usually people escape from jail or they're bad people or they've shot somebody and you go track them down and you catch them. Well, that's cool because, you know, I'm out in the middle of fucking nowhere and I'm tracking you down. So it's me and you and the dog. So that that's pretty cool. And then going into SWAT because SWAT is when the cops can't handle shit. They yeah. call you, right? So then you're, yeah. de- you're dealing with the ultimate problem. And so, you know, to me it was a progression. It's just like martial arts. I go and I'm taking karate. And it's pretty cool when I don't know shit, but when I start knowing shit, I'm like, oh, this is bullshit. This is bollocks. You know, this is not all that. It's cool. You know, we got the uniforms and the fucking belts and stuff that nobody would wear outside to a restaurant. Yeah. You know, so why are we even dressing like this until finding martial science that's real? And you're like, okay, yeah, fuck yeah. Because, I mean, back in the day, I, you know, I did regular wrestling uh, in high school. I did uh, some boxing. Wasn't good at it because I'd want to get stupid and grab somebody and throw them on the mat. But, you know, it, it's kind of a journey. I was always wanting to try to one-up and, you know, do something a little bit better, at least do it to my abilities. And I was by no means a good athlete. You know, I had to really work hard to be, you know, just yeah. average. But that was okay because, you know, you, you have your picture in your mind of what you want to be. You may not ever achieve it. For me, it was, I, you know, I wanted to be as good as I could and sometimes it was hard uh, realizing that, you know, you're not ever going to be really good. <laughs> but, you know, you can be adequate. At least you can understand what's real and what's not. Were you getting in trouble growing up down there? Or... You know, I wasn't just a straight-out thug or anything like that, but I was a bit of a... <laughs> <laughs> you weren't a gangster. <laughs> no, not really. Um, I, I will tell you this. When I first went back to a uh, high school reunion, I think it was my 20th, people were shocked that I had been uh, a law enforcement officer. <laughs> that that may uh, tell you about some of the bad choices I might have made, you know, right. growing up. How long did you stay in the Army for? I, I did a total of uh, four years regular Army, came out and did reserves. Uh-huh. Ended up doing a little bit of time in the, uh, in the National Guard also. Gotcha. Um, when I came out, skills that you learn in the infantry just don't really translate. They don't? Not unless you're, you know, you're running a street gang. So the, the, the next obvious choice for me was to join one of the biggest gangs, which is law enforcement, right? You know, that's what I did. So it was, a, uh, it was another way to get, you know, uh, serve and protect and do all that stuff like we do on the flag waving, but also get my adrenaline rush on also, you know? Would you just take a regular police test at a local precinct, so to speak? And You know, in Tennessee, you have a lot of rural law enforcement. And, of course, you have, you know, compared to New York or, or places where you guys live, we don't have the the large population areas. I mean, Memphis is like a million plus, and, you know, Nashville here is about the same. Uh, so for me, it was uh, starting out in the sheriff's department. That kind of appealed to me because, like I said, you know, daydreaming about, you know, John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart and that kind of crap, you know. I was like, well, hell, I get to be a, a deputy sheriff, you know. And, of course, you got uh, down here, most of the counties are six, 700 square miles. So uh, you got a lot of area to cover. And, of course, back in those days, uh, you might be working, you know, a 12-hour shift, and there's only two or three of you covering that. So you get to go out there, and you uh, you get to play lawman uh, without having the uh, the ability of, you know, 20, 30 guys backing you up. So you get to you get to make some decisions and do some things. So that's where I started. I started out as a, as a sheriff's deputy and ended up working my way up, uh, you know, to uh, di- different other jobs in law enforcement. 
Was the initial job, was it kind of boring because you were just out in the world? There was not much going on? Oh, heck no, because the call volume, the call volume may not be what you get like in New York City, but if there's only two or three of you and it takes you 30, 40 minutes to get there at, you know, say you're doing 100 miles an hour with blue lights, (laughs) you know, that's pretty cool, right? Yeah. What kind of crimes would you typically see down there? Oh, you get everything that you get in the city. You know, you get everything from your domestic violence to your assaults. Folks in the South are really known for their drinking. We have a lot of that type of stuff. We have a lot of what we used to call uh, juke joints, old bars and beer joints that would have sawdust on the floor with a neon. And so there's a lot of times, it's you know, one bloke will look at another guy, and the next thing you know, they're putting their fist in their mouth, and you're getting a call down there, and five or six guys are going at it, and you're, you know, the only resolution at the time. And, of course, back then it was really before pepper spray and tasers and stuff. You know, I ended up staying on long enough to, uh, you know, experience the taser and the pepper spray and all that. But back in those days, you know, you'd pull out the oak truncheon because you really don't want to shoot anybody if you don't have to, you know, and you just go to town. So that made it interesting, you know, made some more stories. Yeah, Hawk talks about that too, back being a cop back in the day where you had to lay your hands on guys. Nowadays, you can't do that. Yeah, you know, when I came home from uh, Afghanistan, I came home in 2015 in May, and I had a real good buddy of mine that had retired from a sheriff's department. He had a little gig in a small rural police department, so he was going to make me his assistant chief. I lasted 90 days, swear to God. (laughs) I I flew in from Dubai on a Saturday and raised my hand on a Monday, and it was a good gig, you know, assistant chief of police. Still had to do some stuff on the road, but, man, 90 days was all I could last because, I mean, you know— the cameras and, you know, the way you're judged and so forth. When I first started, most all of my mentors uh, were World War II, Korean, and Vietnam vets. And, you know, these were guys that were a bit rough around the edges. The mantra was you treat everybody as nice as you can, but then when it came to where you didn't, you made sure any of their relatives that were dead and gone could feel what you were doing to them. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) You got to earn your respect, you know. Sure do. And, you know, nowadays, you know, and, and I respect the guys that wear the uniform. We train tons of local, federal, state law enforcement here, and I appreciate the job they do, and I don't see how they do it nowadays. But it was a different time back then. Sure. I'm glad I got to experience it. Kudos to what they do now because there's just no way. I, I just don't have the temperament to do it. I teach at the local police academy, a defensive tactics coordinator, right? And it is fascinating. And actually, quite honestly, the least amount of time training is putting your hands on someone and controlling them, whatever that facet may be. And you know, perhaps the, the attorney general was there the day before or something like that. And the guys are so concerned with how you can do it. I can't do that. That's illegal. This is it. Understandably so. They fill their heads with all this stuff that they're completely afraid to do anything and have really no physical attributes or real training to do it outside the couple hours I give them. It's quite frustrating. It's superficial training. Yeah, I agree. What did it for me when I finally, like I said, I lasted 90 days. I had went to a a chief of police convention. Like I said, this was in 2015. So President Obama was still in office and he had just gotten through with a study of law enforcement and he put out some directives And basically what it was, making sure law enforcement wasn't as paramilitary as he thought maybe we were, becoming more collegiate. So a lot of the academies had changed their methodologies of physical training, uh, changed their methodologies of defensive tactics, uh, even tactics when it comes to any kind of use of force, especially firearms. When I went through that, that little symposium, one of the chief of police, I'm not going to say from what city he was from, but he said, this is going to be the death toll for law enforcement in America. It's going to change you know, the face of our society. And, you know, I think we've really seen that in the United States in the last three or four years, you know, with what's going on. I see a lot of parallels with everything you're saying with the conversation I had with Hawk just a couple of weeks back. We were talking about the militarization of police and how he's not a fan of that and how, you know, if he was hiring, he'd get everyone to be as polite as humanly possible but everything he said was very fair so he said you know if he had a fight with some cop he'd always bust them for the original crime that he'd arrested them for somewhere along the lines we seem to have got a little bit lost and it should be going the other way yeah you know i, I think it's very true i had heard that podcast like i said once again i'm a fan 
uh, I'd heard you guys. You know, I respect, you know, a lot of what Hawk does. Uh, he and I have a similar background, uh, even sure. though he was he was mainly a city cop. I've been a city cop also. You know, I think he was spot on in a lot of those things. You know, back in the day, we would try our best to be fair. You know, we would cut a lot of breaks, especially, you know, if you weren't a frequent flyer. Because we didn't want to ruin we didn't want to ruin anybody's life, especially sure. the kids. So a lot of that going on uh, nowadays. I don't know if that's still the norm, because uh, you're held so accountable for everything that you know that you do, every action you take. And you know we're supposed to be accountable, but some things don't translate well on video. Some things don't translate right. well on interpretation from a third party that doesn't have the experience of the situation. You know, nowadays, with the ability to see what's happening immediately, so many uh, judgment calls made and so many things out there that you're having to deal with that, you know, back in my day, you didn't have to deal with. So it, uh, it creates a whole different environment. Uh, and I don't think it's uh, necessarily an environment for the better. What used to be permissible and what used to be expected, you know, people get so uh, offended nowadays by things back in the day we just shrug our shoulders on, sure. you know. There's some trends in the UK, and I'm not law enforcement, so uh, you know, perhaps a police officer would be better placed. I think we're going to get a, a UK police officer on soon on the show. But, for example, they all carry these chest cameras, which no one likes being filmed, but also it puts pressure on them to act in a certain way. There's incredibly heavy documentation burden on these guys, and they have targets to hit, so they're less likely to have that freedom that you would have had to say look i'm gonna let this guy go on this time and just let them off of a warning i agree with you and, and you know there's gonna be shitheads no matter what profession you're in <laughs> there's gonna there's gonna be crappy doctors crappy lawyers crappy law enforcement but what you do is you make sure you you get people that fit what you're wanting to do and then you train the hell out of them you know you train them in their defensive tactics you train them in their skill set of dealing with their community and what I found out in law enforcement, it was generational. By the time I had got out of it, I, I'd arrested three and four generations of one family. Uh, wow. You know, that's uh, people making choices. You know, you can say it's socioeconomic yeah. or whatever, but still it's choices and it's lifestyle choices. And, um, and you would see people that you would never, ever arrest, no matter what their station in life, no matter how poor they were or how well off they were. Society is society. I think there's always bad guys. Thank God there's not a lot of truly evil people because there's not. There's yeah. people that make bad mistakes. You know, you get tanked up and you go out to have a good time and things go awry. And that's totally different than somebody that's a sex predator or a child predator or somebody that's killing for the yeah. pleasure of it. Somebody that kills in the uh, heat of the moment or what they used to say a crime of passion is far different yeah. than somebody that gets a rocks off on you know taking somebody's life so it's sure. uh, it's a different way you should uh, you should act toward those people you know they still have consequences for their actions there's no doubt of that but i just think society overall of course i'm getting to be a you know a bit of an old guy too so you know maybe <laughs> maybe i'm not as appreciative of the music or the way things are that maybe right. i should be that's no, funny you've got the most incredible list of qualifications i mean it's like pages, pages long of like you know canine SWAT firearms instructor etc etc what would you say your kind of major skill sets are and what did you love about the job uh I tended toward the uh the SWAT side and the canine side because I hate writing tickets <laughs> I, hate, <laughs> I hate I hate traffic enforcement to me it was just kind of inane to have to write somebody a ticket for running a stop sign so what I was trying to do is gravitate towards something where I could it was fun it was cool so I could be like Miami Vice or something. So <laughs> I, I became an investigator pretty quick, not because I was good or talented, but because I was tenacious. I love working snitches because I love talking to people. So yeah, I followed yeah. that at first, and then I got stuck on a child sexual abuse team. That was not a fun thing to do for I, How did you deal with that on a personal level? Like when you're having I to see that shit. Oh, I finally went to that? my supervisor and told him, says, look, you're going to have to transfer me or I'm going to kill somebody. Because, right. You know, you're, yeah. you know, you're dealing on the victim side. Then you have to identify who the perpetrator is. Usually it's not too much trouble because once the victim opens up, uh, you know, they usually identify it. So it's not really a Sherlock Holmes type situation there. But then you want to get a confession, right? 
uh, because a confession, you know, along with any physical evidence and victim statements, just ties it in. And, and of course, I'm a OCD type kind of person, and I was very fortunate in my career. I only lost one case, and wow. uh, that was because it was a utility company, and everybody gets screwed by utility companies, and the jury wasn't going to find in their favor. But anyhow, uh, <laughs> nobody likes paying electricity bill, right? No. <laughs> you know Jim does it pays everyone individually in like uh, cash. <laughs> so old school. I know, I know. You're so funny. <laughs> so, you know, I, I did that and I got fortunate. They moved me out of that and then I uh I started working homicide and I was on a murder task force. In the rural parts of Tennessee, a lot of times you'll be on task force or you'll work for the district attorney's office. It's not like being uh you know, emergency services unit in Manhattan or somewhere, you know, they have, you know, their big population area. So, you know, a lot of times when uh, when I would do stuff like that, I'd be working like a five, six county area, which, you know, like I said, in in West Tennessee, where I was working, uh, some of those counties are five to six hundred uh, square yeah. miles. But, Gigantic. Yeah. You know, so that's pretty cool. You know, it's you know, it's like, oh, I'm almost a Texas Ranger without the hat, you know, so I got all this territory. <laughs> Funny. So after you were there, we were in law enforcement for 23 years? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And then what? You just decided you had enough or they kicked yeah, you out? Or... <laughs> no, no, no. I, you know, I, I decided I had enough and I, you know, I've got, I've got some sons and I was like, okay, they could use some money because the money in uh, law enforcement is shit. Yeah. So, you know, back then I was law enforcement. I had a couple other businesses going. You know, I had a couple of dojos I was running on the sides. When you're a cop back in those days, you had to have your side gig to try right. to make money. And so I was like, well, this is not great money. And I had a couple of buddies of mine that went to Kosovo on a uh, police mission. And uh, they were making like six figures. And I'm like, holy hell, and you're not breaking the law? And they were like, yeah, you know, six figures. So, I, you know, I, I tried out. My first couple of years, I went to work in Afghanistan it was on a uh, mission called INL CIVPO, which is International Narcotics Law Enforcement Civilian Police Program. And uh, I got very lucky because of my background and all the training I had done. And I uh, became lead ta a lead tactical instructor at an academy in Afghanistan. And so we were in charge of training the Afghan Border Patrol, the Afghan Civil Order Police, which is wow. the, the equivalent of uh, our, our FBI HRT. And then, of course, their Afghan Uniform Police. It was shits and giggles. It was fun. So I was up in the Hindu Kush, shooting guns and teaching people how to shoot other people back. How long would you be out there for a stint? Was it be six months at a time, three months at a time? No, I, I did two years. I came home. You were gone year. for two years or you came home once a year? to? I, I came home once a year because, you know, taxes. You know how it works. You don't want to give any money up. So you can, right. you can come back stateside for, was it, 30, 35 days a year, anything past that, and you've got to pay the tax man. I'm a Southern boy, so I've got, you know, Scotch-Irish roots, so I don't like the government in some ways. <laughs> you know? Cheers. That's right. Yeah. Let's so just I, to that. I, I would come back. I would come back once a year to the States, and then uh, we would get two vacations a year, and the other vacation, I would go somewhere and mess with martial arts. I'd either go to uh, Thailand and hang out over there at one of the Thai boxing gyms, because I'd, I'd been on a martial arts journey since I was like 12 years old. What martial uh, arts did you start with? What was that journey? I don't even know anything about that. Uh, it was crap. It was absolutely crap because you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I got you. You know how guys are. You grow up. You know, you you have your little schoolyard bouts. You know, you might punch somebody in the nose. You know, back in the '60s, you know, you would see somebody like James Gardner, and then you know when uh, the Green Hornet came on the scene, you're like, oh, look at this cat. You know, right. look at Bruce Lee, and then uh, of course when Bruce Lee started making his you know movies that we seen. We like, holy hell, you know, this is pretty cool. So, you know, the only thing we had going on in the area was a, a couple of karate schools, you know, some Mac dojos. And don't get me wrong, you know, the, the guys were good. They were great. But the idea of fighting was not the most realistic. So, you know, I go on this Shotokan uh, karate journey. It's cool. It's okay. You know, we didn't have the foam-dipped safety apparatus back then like that came into vogue. So, you know, we'd either be doing empty hand stuff you know, trying to do one step, two step. And every once in a while when the teacher's not, you know, right on us, you know, we'd really try some boxing stuff and get a bloody nose. And you'd go to tournaments, and it was still, it was more real fighting in a way, but it still wasn't, you know. 
So there was there was a lot of things that people thought were real that right. weren't. And then growing up where I did, growing up on the river is is a little bit different than growing up in just a farmland because the river's a little rougher because uh, we had a harbor. We got all these river boats that come in with deck yeah. And so the little town I grew up in had 13 churches and 13 liquor stores and beer joints. You know, people are going to church and worshiping God, and on Saturday night they're beating the shit out of each other. You know, so <laughs> so, so 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 you would go. You know, you, I'd go to the karate school, and I started out when I was like 13, 14 years old. Then you want to try stuff, right? And it doesn't work. You know, the first time the guy you know takes you down on on the pavement or on the gravel, uh, that's a little bit different. So stayed with it, and you know, go to the army. In the army, you know how bases are. You know, you've either got Folks from other countries wanting to sell you uh, stolen electronics, or you've got Taekwondo studios. Me, I'm kind of a short, stubby guy, so Taekwondo wasn't the best. I'm not the most flexible, but that's what was there. And, of course, the Army Combatives Program at the time probably hadn't have been redone since 1943. So, you know, we're doing pugil yeah. sticks and, you know, you right, know we're doing sure. stuff like that. We're actually learning more when we get a weekend pass and we're going to the bar. Than we're else, you know? training, yeah. <laughs> that that was pretty much you know what I had learned when I got in law enforcement. You know, you you go to the academy and the uh, the defensive tactics are dismal, terrible. Uh, yeah, they're horrible. Uh, most everything is you you learn to the lowest common denominator, which is shit. If you want to see something scary, get online with a bunch of retired law enforcement officers and trying to qualify them for the Leosa class. Because yeah. most of them are not gun people. They're good people, but they're not gun people. And so it can be a bit scary. So that kind of put me on my journey. I got lucky and I found Chinese boxing. And the Chinese boxing I found wasn't traditional chop suey crap. It was an eclectic mix of some Wing Chun, JKD, Shui Chow, Chinna. Some of the board of directors on the Chinese Boxing Institute International, Taki Kimura, Dan Inosanto, Lowman Cam, uh, Yip Man's nephew. So we, we were studying, you know, some more realistic type stuff. And so that's what I stuck with for a long time. And still I'm affiliated with them, but I also, you know, try to go out and, you know, get better on the ground game. And, and so that's why I've taken all these different training courses. First of all, because I had the opportunity. And uh, second of all, a lot of it came out of my pocket because... Out of every 100 police officers, you'll find probably about 10 or 15 that want to seek additional training. The rest of them want to draw a check. Yeah, yeah. And I think that might even be a high number. Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> right. My experience up here. So you just had a hunger for it. And people don't realize that all that money, time, effort that you spent to do, I mean, all these certifications become qualified in it at a very high level. That is no small undertaking on any level. It's quite impressive. And as you said, going back to, to the police stuff, you know, after you just take that one course that you're required to take by the academy, it's a very little amount of information. You really need to go on to, to grow what you're doing. And you did. Wow, it's huge. Well, you know, I, I think everybody has to grow. I think, you know, whether you're a martial artist, you know, I mean, you, you train people fighting, you know, sure. uh, amateur and professional. And, you know, everybody, you know, back in the day when UFC first started, Hoist Gracie, oh, my God. You know, but it didn't take long to start defeating some of the things he was doing sure. because people started growing. You know, most people don't realize people fighting other people's nothing new. It's like Christmas. It's been around for a while. Been around for a while. It seems like people, you know, have to reinvent or relearn because they forget things. You know, we've, we've been knocking each other in the teeth for a long time, but it seems like sometimes we forget how to fish hook and we forget how to do the dirty trick. <laughs> right. You know? When I learned how to fish hook, I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to a bar this weekend, and I'm fish hooking somebody. I, I was wrestling <laughs> with one of my guys. I don't know if, Tom, you know Chuck. Uh, I'm wrestling with Tom. Chuck's work. I'm yeah. working on him getting his black belt in BJJ, and we were doing some dirty grappling. I don't usually do it with him. I do it with this other guy, Greg. Everything's legal. Everything. Grabbing the face, the ears, sticking your fingers in the eyes. So I was wrestling with Chuck, and I stuck my knuckle in his eye. And rubbed it around a little bit and gave him a gigantic shot. <laughs> and he didn't know what to do about it. He goes, you can't do that. I said, I do that so I don't forget to do that. It's not personal. And I'm sorry yeah, about your black point. eye. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but that's, that's exactly my point. 
you can go to all the the and I don't mean to sound like an ass when I say McDojo. You can go to all those you want to, and you can come out with a piece of paper and feel good about yourself. But you know, it comes down to really challenging yourself and seeing what works and what doesn't work. And I think that's why somebody like, you know, back when I was a kid that Bruce Lee, you know, I was a fan of. And then when I started, you know, finding out more about him on how he was cross training and how he was, you know, in the fitness and, and weightlifting and, and things like that. I'm like, yeah, th- th- this makes sense. You know, it absolutely makes sense that, you know, there's other pieces of the puzzle out there. So when you're doing all your gun training through the years and you started out, you know, as a cop and stuff and then obviously the military stuff, when you're going through this now, when you go back upon it, are you able to see things right through that? Like you have a good bullshit meter as to what's a complete nonsense being taught out there and what's realistic. Are you, are you still learning while you're doing this? Oh, I think you're always learning, but bullshit meter is real easy. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. It, it, it's real easy. You know, it, it's, it's like, uh, you know, you put forward pressure on somebody whether you're you're grappling, whether you're you're punching that guy, or whether you're actually putting a clock on them on the gun range, or uh, you're getting them to you know, solve problems with a gun, when you put forward pressure on somebody or turn the heat up, so to speak, then you can see who's bullshit and who's not. Right away, right? You go on YouTube and ever watch stuff and go, oh my god. Yeah, it you is. know how it is. You know we'll talk about that. We'll have a few drinks and stuff. We said, did you see what that guy was doing? Oh yeah, absolutely, it was shit. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, nothing. You can, YouTube can be uh, one of your greatest enemies, I guess, as an instructor in this stuff. The guys will come with a little bit of knowledge, which can be really dangerous, you know? Sure, absolutely can be. What we try to do here at Royal Range, you know, we sell guns, okay? We sell guns, we manufacture guns, we manufacture machine guns. We do everything here. We've got retail, we've got gunsmithing, armors. It's amazing. I've got, I, I've got 45, 46 employees. Depends on whether I fired anybody today or not. But uh, <laughs> And training academy, believe it or not, we do parties. Hell, I didn't know we were going to do that because it's Nashville, right? In Nashville, everybody comes to party. I think we've got like 250 bars and 150 music venues seven days a week here. So That's it's you know, pretty amazing. It, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you get a bunch of hillbillies drinking, you know, shit happens. <laughs> uh, and, but the cool thing about Nashville now is it's not just country music. It's not fiddles, banjos, and, and sure. mandolins. We got we got all kind of music here. I mean, in our store here, you never know who's going to walk in. A month ago, I had Billy Givens in here from uh, ZZ Top. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah, so we train those type of people. Usually it's really quiet because they'll get absolutely crucified by the mainstream media if they're getting firearms training or right. defensive tech because it's not you know socially acceptable anymore. But that's the cool thing about Nashville. Cool thing about this place here. We try to give you an opportunity that, hey, we, we teach BJJ here. Uh, we teach different mixed martial arts. We teach some traditional martial arts. We do some boxing here. We do knife. We do stick. We do baton, police collapsible baton crap. We do taser, all that crap. How did you end up with Royal Range? How did that come about after oh, all the other stuff you've done? An, an, absolute, an absolute freaking fluke. Like I said, I came home in May of 2015 from Afghanistan, tried to cop thing for 90 days, and hung it up. And I was coming back from New Orleans, went down there to look at a security gig, doing some stuff with K9. A buddy of mine said, "Hey, they're they're hiring over at this place that used to be a movie theater instructors." It looks great. The front of it, it is what it was. It was a real life movie theater. Itself. Yeah, it was absolutely it was. Right. And and so I, I, you know, I came by, I loaded up. Uh, in the SUV, and I, I came over here, and uh, they hadn't opened the range yet, and they hadn't opened the training academy. They had the retail section open. So I come in, and the guy that was general manager, he was a retired uh, C-130 pilot from the Air Force. He knew me, he said. You know, I couldn't remember him, but, you know, when you're over in Afghanistan or Iraq, you take a lot of flights, you know? And he said he remembered hauling us around in dogs and stuff like that out of Baghdad. And so he took me on a tour, and uh, he hired me because I I had all these certifications, so that was a good thing about spending money and going to these schools because it allowed yes. me to get a bunch of jobs, right? Got your job, and, make some of your money back. <laughs> oh hell yeah! And plus, I get to train folks, and I'm getting paid for it. And, you know, you get to wear the cool five eleven pants and the freaking polo, <laughs> you know, right. and, and the contractor goatee and shit like that. So you know, it's pretty cool. The contractor you know? goatee. Yeah, the Afghan the Afghan <laughs> call this a French beard. Is well, that what they do? It? Yeah. That's, that's French beard. Then you pop them in the throat and you're going about your business, right? <laughs> <laughs> so 
so I came to work here as you know as an instructor, and I was like, oh, this is pretty cool for an old guy. Next thing I know, a few months later, they asked me, say, hey, you want to run the place? And I like, oh, I don't know, because you know I'm not a good, I'm not really good at counting beans. Right. You know, some days I'm glad I really took the job of running the place, and some days I'm like, what in the hell were you thinking about? <laughs> <laughs> You're funny. And how long you been there now? Uh, I've been here since January of 2016. It's doing great. You got tons of stuff going on there. It's amazing the amount of stuff that you have available at this place. Let me use some vernacular that I learned as a businessman. You've got to have multiple revenue streams to make a business plan work. This is true. How does that sound? <laughs> Sounds awesome. <laughs> you know, <laughs> 30 years ago, I wouldn't know what the shit I was talking about. Right. You, you actually sound like you know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, you know, you got to BS, right? You got to You got to be real good at BS, and that's one of my superpowers. <laughs> there you go. What is the ownership of the organization? Because in order to set up a range with so many different ranges, you know, the kind of place I'm used to shooting is like going out in a field almost. And shooting a hay bale. Yeah, so there must be a load of money behind your facility. We're very fortunate with our owners. The primary owner, the, the gentleman that started it, John Russell, he made his money in insurance, motor vehicle insurance, and he's not a gun guy. He's just a conservative American. One of his high school buddies just recently uh, retired as a four-star general. He was head of all European command. I'm not going to mention his name, but so he's real conservative in his thought process, and he got tired of hearing all the anti-gun rhetoric and he didn't even own a gun, guys. And so he put his money where his mouth was, and he decided to build this place with the idea of providing training for civilians on at least what the Second Amendment truly is and basically why America is what it is. So it's almost a Yankee Doodle, patriotic, flag-waving type individual that's awesome. very logical, and he's very old school, but yet he can move, in, uh, he can move amongst all the... Uh, the liberals from the West Coast also. But uh, <laughs> that was the premises of building this. Like I said, the gentleman didn't even own a gun. He has two guns now. I mean, you know, I probably got a, a mil point four worth of guns downstairs, and he still only owns two guns. That's so funny. But that was his idea. He wasn't trying to get everybody carrying a gun. He just wanted people to understand why America decided, uh, you'll have to excuse me about this, kick King George off the continent. <laughs> oh, very offended. Yeah, no, well, you have to get over it, Tom. <laughs> what makes the organization so unique and what are you trying to achieve there longer term? What we try to do is, is just like what I said, we try to train the community, give them awareness, give them opportunities. Also, we train uh, military, private security, and law enforcement. We're very, very lucky here uh, on the law enforcement side. We're, at, we're able to train these guys above and beyond what the minimal standards are. And so we train local law enforcement, state law enforcement, and we have contract with several of the uh, federal agencies also. Wow. And talk us through some of the courses that you have on offer. I imagine it's quite a lot. We usually tailor-make curriculum for different law enforcement agencies. We do things for, uh, you know, Homeland Security. We have what's called a force-on-force room or a Sims house not airsoft it's actually a true weapon that's been modified not to shoot a live bullet but shoot a projectile at about 500 feet per second so they're able to use their normal platform or their holster or their ar or their shotgun and inside our force on force room we're able to change the floor plan we can change the walls the doors and so they can actually um, get into scenarios of active shooters and of course this transposes to us doing training for church security uh, school security training. We do corporate site security assessments. We do a ton of stuff off-site. We go all over the country and do different things for corporate America on uh, site security assessments and getting them ready to uh, deal with active shooters, executive protection things, everything from uh, driving package on how to do uh, you know defensive, offensive driving. So what we try to do at Royal Range, we try to like I said, have multiple revenue streams, not just for civilians, All but right. private security and law enforcement. Now, is this the only location? Are there other locations? Or? Yeah, this is it. You know, there, there's been some talk of franchising it, but... Yeah, it's quality control. Yeah, quality control is, is an issue. I, you know, we're so very fortunate here with our cadre. Uh, my director of training is a 34-year police veteran. 
He ran the academy here for Nashville Metro. He was uh, on the SWAT team for 24 years. My bio compared to his, I look like a second grader compared to all the stuff he's been. I've got a ton of guys that are from the Special Forces community, you know, Green Berets. We've had Navy SEALs here that are on our cadre list. Matter of fact, I've got one guy, uh, he's a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and he's a um, retired Master Sergeant from the 5th Group. Fort Campbell, Kentucky, the home of the 101st Airborne and the 5th Special Forces, is only 40 minutes from our facility, so we have quite a pool of talent that we're able to hire. That gives us a lot of diversity. Uh, It certainly does. You know, we're we're so very fortunate here. Out of my 40-something employees, 45 employees, I think about 70% our former military and law enforcement retired right. or active duty. So it gives us a, an opportunity to ply our trade without having to be up under an overpass with a sign, you know, saying, give us money. <laughs> give us money. So what's next for you? I mean, after you've run this and you're kind of done with it for whatever reason, or maybe you're not, maybe you'll just work here forever. Is there other plans? I'm hoping we can uh, make it a little bit bigger for is, uh, the stuff we do offsite. That's where the uh, the opportunities are, us moving outside the state of Tennessee. Yeah. Uh, like I said, so far, we've done about, I think we've done 12 different states so far, or 10 different states where we're going to different locations. So I'm really interested in uh, doing that, expanding that part of it, especially on dealing with active shooter. At least that's a buzzword. I think it occurs far less than most people you know, think. But it's certainly a concern. And, of course, making sure people understand about how to deal with certain emergencies, not just the zombie apocalypse. You know, we're not we're not going to necessarily be Rick Grimes, you know, shooting zombies in the head. I think people don't know how to do things in case there's tornadoes, hurricanes, socioeconomic collapse or what have you. So uh, you know, oh, yeah, we can yeah. We, we can only hope. Right. We- <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so funny. When someone comes up with an idea about maybe a new program of something that you want to do. How does that happen? I mean, how does that come to I guess your director of training, Bob Allen, that's his name. So Bob goes, I'm thinking about this. And then you guys just kind of have a a power meeting on and kind of go, is this something? Yeah, yeah. A lot of times it'll start at the pub. (laughs) All great stories start. Sure, sure. We're having a beer. (laughs) Everybody have a, you know, a beer or a proper single malt. You know, we usually sit down and... uh, a lot of times, you know, the firearms industry itself is driven by politics. You know, most 100%. politicians, you know, most everybody gets elected on increased police presence, the war on drugs and things like that, even though that's a war we're probably never ever going to win because they don't want to. Right. It's like pharmaceutical right. companies. We're not curing shit. We're just going to sell you a pill. But um, <laughs> but, you know, that's the way it that's the way it starts out. You know, something happens. We see, a, you know, something going on, you know, whether it's crap going on in France or this, that and the other. And we say, hey, you know, what what if that and we try to transpose that to, uh, you know, an importance, you know, like a carjacking scenario. You know, that's gotten kind of big in uh, in, in the area around here was was carjacking and so forth. Right. You know, the, the first thing we were telling everybody by manual transmission, because. People can't steal your car. That's right. right. That's so true. <laughs> no one can drive a stick. It's so funny. Yeah. You could leave the, the car unlocked and no one's going to take it. <laughs> it's so true. Tom, do you have anything in particular that we may have missed? I wanted to just go back to the martial arts stuff a bit. Oh, yeah, sure. When you were younger, you were saying in your area, it was difficult to find the kind of martial arts stuff that you wanted to find. So you would start with karate and then taekwondo. And then later on, you managed to find the Chinese boxing stuff. Through your facility, you've now got the opportunity to get the programs in that you always wanted, maybe. So, oh, it's it's like Christmas. <laughs> yeah. So we do that. Well, you know, we got Hawk. Hawk comes twice a year. I don't know you if you guys are familiar with a guy named Two Lamb of Ronan Tactics. Two comes. He's coming out uh, in September this year. He's going to be doing a, a, a bladed class and pistol and, uh, and I think carbine also. And so uh, on our website, we've got a thing called third-party hosted training. And uh, it allows me to bring all these great people in. We're the only place, I think, now on the East Coast that does gunsight training. Gunsight training is the oldest firearms academy in the world, started by Colonel Jeff Cooper. It's the gold standard. So we're able to you know, get these kind of partners in here 
a matter of fact, I was talking to Hawk the other day on the phone that, you know, maybe might get you guys to come down, you know, sometime in the near future and, and uh, do, do some things. Uh, but, yeah, you, you're absolutely right. It's like Christmas, except for Christmas in a mad scientist lab, because I, I've got all kind of great people coming here. Uh, I've got Kyle Lamb lives right down the road. You may not be familiar with Kyle, but he was portrayed in the movie Black Hawk Down. He's a retired Delta Force Sergeant Major. He owns Viking Tactics. He comes up here and does quite a bit of things for us. And like I said, because of our proximity to Fort Campbell, you guys remember the movie 12 Strong about the uh, the guys that first went into Afghanistan? Back, and yeah. yeah, those guys are about 10 minutes from me right here, and they're here almost wow. every week. We wow. have those guys in here, you know, either giving talks on uh, the global war of terrorism or actually doing training. We're not doing any McDojo crap, but we're going to do stuff. That That's we're, for sure. We're going to stick a finger in your eye, and we're going to, you know, maybe fish hook you, and then we're going to stick the gun in your mouth and, you know, do what we got to do to be successful, right? That's that's all we can ask for. That's right. Tom, you're a gun guy now, Tom. How did this happen? Like, wouldn't you be thrilled to go down to Tennessee and try this place out? Uh, Yeah, a thousand percent. I think we're in talks about September next year, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, we've got got a bunch of machine guns laid back for you. I've got the 50 caliber Barrett, and uh, we've got... (laughs) We've got some stuff. But yeah, we're the only place in Tennessee that you can shoot the 50 caliber Barrett inside. Wow. wow. So uh, Inside? I, I, no, it's, oh, I yeah. was watching the YouTube videos. It's nuts. There's one question Art, that I like to lo- kind of ask everyone that's got kind of operational experience and a martial arts background is, how does martial arts influence your law enforcement and military experience and vice versa how does the military and law enforcement experience influence your martial arts training i think for me it gave me a gauge of what works and what doesn't work really quick and discard all the rest of the trash i was able to find out pretty quick that uh we're all different there's some things that you can get by with in a fight that i can't but there's some things that i might be uh that might be in my toolbox so it, it was a toolbox theory that i can pick and choose and then I can work on those 20 things or that 20% uh, of all the techniques out there that, that I need to need to keep in my box. So uh, in my law enforcement career, the joint manipulation, the stuff like that that I could use on whether it was a uh, inebriated subject or a mental health person to get compliance was really helpful. Understanding what it's like to get punched in the nose or the throat and what it takes to, you know, to push through that. There's martial arts theory, there's martial arts hopes and dreams, and there's martial arts reality. And I think I was able to learn what martial arts reality was and, you know, right. and kind of just discount the BS. Even though the BS is pretty cool when you're 12 or 14 years old and shit, and you want to be like a Wudan hero in Shaolin or something, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I wanted to ask you as well about your experience in Afghanistan and Iraq. When you look back upon that and kind of what's been achieved over there and versus like the objectives that were in place. How do you look back at that time? Was it, how dangerous was it? Do you feel like, do you look back fondly on those places or, you know, do you think they're going to hell down there really? I think we haven't been able to successfully nation build since Japan. I think we did a pretty decent time there. I think we screwed up Germany <laughs> with the wall. And I think we said, okay, let's take that fiasco and let's move it to Afghanistan and Iraq on nation building. When you fight a war, it's like a uh, physical encounter. You need to fight to win and survive, and then you need to get the hell out. I think sometimes the goals and the ideas were very muddied, and I think it was hard to, um, to find the right path. Some parts of the, uh, the countries, both of them are absolutely beautiful and breathtaking. Some of them are absolutely shit. It was dangerous in areas. It did. I always, always reflect on those days comparing to what I thought my father might have endured uh, during World War II, my father was uh, attached to uh, George Patton, and he was actually on the invasion of Italy. He didn't talk much about it, uh, but the few things he did, and of course when you watch the movies and crap, you're thinking, oh shit, they were enduring stuff we didn't. And then of course, you know, the jungles of Vietnam were so different. Now, deserts are a bit shit. We've endured 145, 150-degree heat, and then in a Hindu Kush, you endure winters like you're in the Upper Peninsula. And then, of course, you know, you didn't have to deal with aircraft, which was great. The terrorists didn't have, uh, you know, bombing raids on you, carpet bombing and so forth. But the uh, the rockets, I, I never know you could shoot rockets off the ass end of a donkey. 
Uh, for some, it, <laughs> you know, it, it, it kind of screws the donkey up. I bet it does. <laughs> you know, you know, you had to, you know, deal with the uh, snipers and the donkeys and the mortars and the rockets. Rockets, I found out, are very, very inaccurate. I had no idea. You know, I really didn't know what rockets were that much other than, you know, from the National Anthem, the rockets red glare type thing. <laughs> uh, right. But mortars, mortars are shit. <laughs> they can be very accurate with mortars. Um, so, you know, I had, I had a, quite a few close calls. Had a quite a uh, few boring days. The culture is interesting. I have a lot of great friends that are from Iraq and from Afghanistan to this day. There were interpreters that I was able to uh, go and meet their families and stay in their homes and, uh, you know, eat meals with them and so forth. You know, I really feel for them. I had one gentleman that was my counterpart when I was lead tactical trainer in Afghanistan. And this gentleman had watched the Russians uh, murder his mother and father when he was 13 years old. And he'd picked up a gun. And when I met him, he'd been fighting for 30-plus years. Wow. Wow. You know, this guy was a no-bullshit guy. This is a guy that, you know, we all talk about being warriors and we talk about fights. And, you know, this guy had been, you know, basically surviving in a war in environment for 30-plus years. Incredible. Sitting there and talking to him. And he had really good English and just listening to his story and then, you know, listening to the trials and tribulations of dealing with the Russians and then, uh, of course, dealing with the Taliban and then, of course, dealing with us. <laughs> I found a real difference between Iraqis and Afghanis. Uh, you can respect both of them. Um, I equate Afghanis almost to what we must have faced when we were facing the Apache and the Comanche um, because of their tribal lifestyle and uh, their tenacity. It's a different uh, foe that you fight between those two. That's real interesting. Uh, the reason I ask, I think, is, you know, the British Army, for example, have transferred from Op Herrick, which was a, a kind of battle mission, to uh, Op Toral, which is setting the Afghans up to be able to defend themselves. What strikes me is always that risk of, can you trust these guys? You're working closely with them. And it's, it sounds like you're able to trust a few of them, at least. <laughs> a few, you know, it's, it's trust, but verify. So I was at Leatherneck Bastion, which was a, uh, a British and Marine base in Helmand Province. Uh, I actually ended up closing that base down. I ran, I ran the canine package there uh, on the Marine side. So I was able to have a lot of conversations and do some missions with the Brits, you know, their Gurkhas and so forth. It's very, very hard to trust uh, the majority of them because of uh, they don't have a sense of nationality like, uh, say, for example, you're from the U.K., or we're Americans. They're so tribal. It's it's more about their tribe, especially when you get outside the populated areas. So we would never, ever, ever let our guard down. Yeah. Whether it was the police that we were dealing with or the Afghani army. Now, like I said, I have quite a few great friends. Uh, but that being said, I did quite a few missions with the Australians. Great bunch of guys. We would never, ever. When we used to run the line on on qualification. Uh, in other words, your own line, you're out there shooting in a range. We would have on berms, we would have Gurkhas set up with belt-fed machine guns, and we would have one of us for every five people with a submachine gun in hopes that they do not turn around. Yeah. And if they mm -hmm. do turn around, and then negative things could happen because you just didn't know. Because, you know, they're, they're out there trying to qualify, you know, with a life weapon, whether it's an AK or whatever it is. And, you know, you want to go home at night, right? You want to go back to the the dining facility and get a bit of chow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right. Thank you very much, brother. I appreciate it. And I do look forward to coming down there sometime in the near future and meeting you in person and, you know, shooting some guns. <laughs> oh, yeah. We'll shoot some guns and we'll go out and have a pint. How about that? <laughs> oh, or, or, or two. <laughs> hey, Tom, great show, buddy. Peace out. You have been listening to Primal Radio in association with Primal Gym and Primal Promotions. Primal Radio is available on all good podcast venues. To help us grow, please subscribe, like it, share it, and leave us a great review.
I didn't get around to how do you find canine work? Because my dad was a dog handler in the military police. Well, you know, I started out in law enforcement. You know, my military was all infantry and stuff like that. And, of course, back in those days, we were doing drug interdiction. And we were doing, doing drug interdiction uh, on Interstate 40. Interstate 40 runs east and west. Yeah. So all the way from the east coast to the west coast. It's what they call the middle line. You've got Highway 10. Uh, they go through Texas, east and west. And, of course, you got I-40. Uh, and so it's a big, huge drug avenue. And so uh, I was very fortunate. I got sent to canine school, and I got what was called a full patrol dog. Full patrol dog back in those days uh, would track, uh, you know, would attack, and was an odor detector, which was uh, for mine was a narcotics. So I'd run uh, interdiction on I-40. And so what we were doing, we weren't looking for the average bloke just hauling, you know, you know, a, a bag of weed. We were looking for the, uh, the cartel, the organized crime people and try to make those stops, trying to get the, uh, you know, the big hits with drugs and money and so forth. So that's, that was my starting canine, and I uh, did that for many, many years. And then when I transferred over to the uh, SWAT, uh, under special operations in uh, American law enforcement, canine is always under that. Right. So you have your SWAT operators, and you have your canine and so forth. And uh, my last real job in law enforcement, I, uh, I was a commander of a SWAT team for the uh, district attorney general's office. And uh, we, uh, we were over five counties. And so what we did, we did uh, high-risk warrant service and then calls of service, you know, active shooter, whatever, you know, yeah. whatever's going on. Uh, so when I started my contracting gig, you know, I thought, hell, I'm done with canine, just totally done with it. And uh, started out, you know, being an instructor, uh, you know, for those two years in Afghanistan. And then uh, the way contracting goes, you know, one host nation may have it for a while. And then they'll try to save money and they'll send it to another, you know, nation or so forth. And so I decided I wanted to go see Iraq. So I go to Iraq on doing PSD, personal security detail, which that was cool as hell, but it's dangerous as shit. Yeah. <laughs> and then after that, once again, they were, they were going to start hiring a bunch of South Africans, which the money they pay them is a lot less than what they pay us Americans. So I started looking, you know, because you're doing this for money also, right? Yeah. And uh, I found out a buddy of mine said, hey, canine always pays well. And I said, really? I said, but I don't have any bomb experience. I said, all mine is, you know, narcotics and patrol. They said, they don't give a shit. And so, you know, I, I turned in my CV. And uh, while I was still in Baghdad, I get a call. I said, hey, can you come to uh, San Antonio? Uh, for the U.S. military, all canine certification goes through Lackland Air Force Base. That's the big canine school. Yeah. And uh, for the contract side, it was, it was going to be a, a DOD or Department of Defense mission. You had to get certified uh, from that entity. So they said, I said, great, you know, I've got to, I've got to get a ticket and I've got to leave Baghdad. And I said, I would love to stop by the house and say hello to my wife before I come down to training. So, uh, you know, I did that. And the last five and a half years contracting was canine in, uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, we had a few narc dogs, but mainly what we did was bomb dogs. Yeah. We would do what's called ECP work, entry control points of these bases, making sure they don't bring explosives in. Uh, we would do perimeter reaction. In other words, if somebody breached the perimeter, uh, we would have the dogs to search them out, track them out, turn the dogs loose on them. And then we also did mission work. We did mission work with the Canadian Special Forces, the American Special Forces, and the Australian Special Forces. And that's where we would go out, and uh, we would act as you know true bomb dogs and patrol dogs for these units. And what they were doing, they were either looking for HVT, uh, high-value targets, or what have you, I started out as a handler, and because I'm a bit of a dick at times, and I, I, I don't mind telling people what I think, I was offered a position to supervise canine. So I, I, I stood up quite a few missions uh, in southern Iraq and what's called An Nazaria, which is down there close to Basra, really shitholes. <laughs> <laughs> so did that until we closed out that mission in, uh, in Iraq and ended up going to uh, Afghanistan. And uh, was fortunate enough that I ran uh, missions all over. Africa. At one time, I had 750 dog teams that I supervised uh, on the uh, military side, on the DOD side. Wow, impressive. It was interesting, you know. It's it good times, you know. I get to go to places like Kabul and Jalalabad and Kandahar and Herat. You know, shit that I used to read about or think about, you know, in uh, Arabian Nights type stuff. You know, to be in Baghdad and see... 
you know, all those places, Babylon and stuff. I said, you know, this is pretty damn cool. It's bad that Haji's trying to kill our ass. But, you know, it, it's pretty cool, right? A bit more relaxed at Royal Range now. Yeah, you know, but it still gives you a little chance. I, you know, I'm soon to be 60 years old, so it's I, I still get to have my toe in the water, so to speak. But I, I'm not really getting shot at. You, you, I don't have that worry. I, you know, I can't get on the ground like I used to, and I can't do any of that shit. That's why I carry knives and guns, you know. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's a way to still kind of stay associated, you know, with the culture, with the lifestyle. You're in that 15% of cops, as you put it, who are the ones who are continuously trying to improve themselves, uh, probably paying for courses out of your own money. The majority of them, yes. <laughs> and that's why you've got so much in there. And you, you're very humble in that you've, you've said, like, you know, I've got this X, Y, and Z because of luck at times. It's not luck, you know, it's because you've got that list. You're at Royal Range because you've done all of these things. You've oh, got yeah, that credibility. And guess what? It's cause and effect. You got in the car and went down when you heard they were hiring, when other people probably heard that and thought they'll never take me and didn't bother. Well, I think the whole journey has got to be that point where I'm like, fuck it, it's not going to hurt to ask, right? Yeah. You know, and, and I think that's that's one thing I found out about defending yourself or doing the right thing. The majority of the time is just fucking do it. Most people don't have the willingness to do it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. They're so afraid either of failure or they're reluctant. I found out a long time ago, if I can be dirty and ambush and be quick on it, I can probably beat your ass, especially if I can sucker punch you, right? Yeah. That's really what real fighting and real combat is. It's let's sucker punch the guy. Let's take the high ground. Let's ambush his ass and let's get it done. When I came back from overseas and I was going to be a cop again, and I wasn't a dirty cop and I wasn't an abusive cop. I didn't want to mistreat anybody. But if, if you broke bad on me, I didn't give a shit if I had to use the car door on your ass. And I got in trouble a few times. Thank God, I, you know, I never got, you know, punished because I never any real wrongdoing. But that being said, you know, nowadays, bless their hearts. We, we've got an officer in this town that followed the exact rules and had a fleeing felon that had a gun in his hand and was pointing it at the officer while he ran. And the officer shot and killed this guy. The guy had 41 prior convictions. And they charged this officer with first-degree murder. And he's having to defend his, uh, defend his actions yeah. right now in court. Back in the old days where I come from, you would have got patted on the back. But this officer, his career is over with. Even if he's found not guilty, which everybody's pretty assured he will, my director of training is actually uh, the expert witness on the use of force in this case. Uh, but he, he's over with. Uh, he's already been told that even if he's found not guilty, he's going to be pushing a desk. And the guy's got five, six years on the force. So, you know, you're, you're 30 years old and you're being told that, yeah, even though you did the right thing and you're probably going to be found innocent and it's all going to be good, you're never going to work the street again. You can't be a SWAT cop. You can't go out there and do yeah. the cool shit. And you've got to start a new career at 30, like which is difficult, right? Yeah, and, well. and I'm sure this young guy got started for the same type of reasons I did try to put myself in his position i'm like holy shit what a shit sandwich that is because of the way things are nowadays or the way people are perceived it's just totally inane we've emasculated ourselves not just america the whole world is emasculated 